The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Empowering Changes and Revolutionizing Treatment and Equity in Breast Cancer. Unlocking the potential of adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibitors to reduce the risk of recurrence and improve outcomes for diverse patient populations with HR-positive HER2-negative early breast cancer. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash FHB860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello and welcome to this program. Empowering Changes, Revolutionizing Treatment and Equity in Early Breast Cancer, Unlocking the Potential of Adjuvant CDK4-6 Inhibitors to Reduce the Risk of Recurrence and Improve Outcomes for Diverse Population of Patients with Hormone Receptor Positive, HER2-Negative, Early Breast Cancer. Amade Tibordia, Breast Medical Oncologist at Mass General Cancer Center, Harvard Medical School, it's a pleasure to collaborate with GRASP and Living Beyond Breast Cancer for this program. So let's get going. Our goals for today would include augmenting your skills in formulating individualized treatment decision that's inclusive of CDK4-6 inhibitor endocrine therapy for patients with hormone receptor positive HER2-negative early breast cancer based on latest recommendations and evidence. We'll develop a team-based plan for patients with early breast cancer who are receiving adjuvant treatment, how to monitor them, diagnose, manage AEs, achieve optimal treatment adherence and persistence. Finally, we'll learn about implementing strategies to recognize and address disparities in breast cancer for diverse racial and ethnic groups with the goal of being eliminating barriers and ensuring optimal care for all patients, especially minority in the community setting. So let me start with treatment for early breast cancer. If we look at hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer, the risk of recurrence does not stop after five years. And multiple studies have shown that approximately 50% of patients have risk of recurrence in the first five years, and that after that, the risk continues. And this has been seen in uh, several clinical trials as well with longer follow-up. At this time, we have two broad endocrine-based treatments. The first is tamoxifen, which is a selective estrogen receptor modulator. The second is aromatase inhibitor, which tends to lower estrogen, so it has a different mechanism of action, by blocking the aromatase enzyme. Now, aromatase enzyme is responsible for production of estrogen in a patient who is postmenopausal. So that's why in a patient who is premenopausal, if you're using aromatase inhibitor, ovarian suppression is recommended along with aromatase inhibitor because ovarian suppression allows for Suppression of the ovaries, which is the major source of estrogen in a patient who is premenopausal. The current recommendations are to consider 5 to 10 years of adjuvant treatment, and the reason for 10 years is because of this continued risk of recurrence. So what are the unmet needs at this time? The first is, can we identify patients who are at higher risk of recurrence and would benefit from additional treatment, including 
escalation of treatment with chemotherapy as well as novel therapies. Conversely, can we identify patients who do not need these extended treatments, be it endocrine therapy for 10 years or be it uh, additional adjuvant targeted therapies like CDK4-6 inhibitors? The second unmet need is, can we identify patients who have primary endocrine resistance? So, in other words, patients who would have disease recurrence despite endocrine therapy. And then the third is, what are the determinants of late recurrence? From a biology perspective, what causes dormancy? How can cancer cells remain dormant for years and then later on result in late recurrence? So, better mechanistic understanding of dormancy could open doors for additional treatment. Now, before we talk about specific therapies, I wanted to acknowledge the gaps and opportunities for improvement in hormone receptor-positive breast cancer with a focus on CDK4-6 inhibitors. The reason we're talking about CDK4-6 inhibitors is that approximately 30% of patients with hormone receptor-positive negative early breast cancer um, have disease recurrence despite standard endocrine therapy. So we need new treatment options to help these patients with early breast cancer. And we've seen in the metastatic setting, the CDK4-6 inhibitors uh, have shown improvement in progression-free survival. Two of the studies have shown improvement in overall survival as well with ribocyclib and abemacyclib. Um, so it's natural that there's interest in considering these CDK4-6 inhibitors for patients with early hormone receptor-positive breast cancer. It's also important to provide equitable care to all patients with cancer. This is uh, an issue that not only permeates early breast cancer, but breast cancer in general, and I would argue cancer care in general. Disparities and inequities exist across the entire cancer care continuum disproportionately affecting medically underserved population who have economic, cultural, linguistic, and other barriers to care. The contributing factors are multiple. Social determinants of health, access to care, variable quality of care, differences in treatment, implicit bias, and multiple patient and system level factors. If we look at the breast cancer incidence and death rates by ethnicity, you see that there's an increased risk of deaths from breast cancer in the minority population, particularly the black population. And compare that to other groups such as white, you see that there's a difference. Black women have lower rates of diagnosis of breast cancer. They're diagnosed with breast cancer at a younger age, at later stages, more aggressive disease, and have the highest death rates. So it's critical that the progress that we make impacts everyone and all patients with breast cancer have access to the latest therapies, including CDK4-6 inhibitors that we'll review. It's also important to address these social determinants of health in terms of delays in treatment, in terms of enrollment in clinical trials, because often it's through clinical trials that patients have access to the latest treatment. 
drugs that are currently FDA approved were in clinical trials a few years ago. So it's through clinical trials that patients can get access to latest therapies. And it's important that clinical trials represent all patients with breast cancer, not just a specific ethnic group. Okay, so now I'll talk about the evidence related to CDK4-6 inhibitors in ER-positive early breast cancer. We'll start with the Monarch-E study. I'll then talk about the NATLE trial. I'll compare uh, ribocyclib with the bevacyclib in terms of characteristics and how do we put it in clinical practice. And we'll also have a couple of cases reviewing these drugs. So let me first start with the Monarchy study. Monarchy study was a study for patients with high-risk ER-positive HER2-negative breast cancer. How was high-risk defined? High-risk was defined based on clinical pathological features. So that's patients with four or more positive lymph nodes, patients with one to three positive lymph nodes who have at least one of the following, which would be grade three disease, or tumor size more than five centimeters. There was also a subgroup, uh, cohort two, which was a small subgroup, about 10% of patients. And the idea here was to identify patients who were at high risk based on biological features. So patients with one to three positive nodes who did not have grade three tumors or tumor size less than five, uh, tumor size more than five centimeters. So who did not meet cohort one criteria if they had tumors with KI-67, more than 20%, they were included. So let me go over the uh, clinical criteria again, because this is important. This is how the drug should be used and is consistent with the FDA label. Patients with lymph node positive early breast cancer who have four or more positive lymph nodes, that's you know high risk enough, and those patients were included. If you have three, one to three positive lymph nodes, you need one additional criteria. And that could be either grade three disease or tumor size more than five centimeter or KI-67 more than 20%. If one of these criteria are met, the patient was considered eligible for the clinical trial. Patient received endocrine therapy plus abemacyclib, 150 milligrams twice a day uh, versus endocrine therapy as per physician's choice stratified by menopausal status, region, and prior chemo. The primary endpoint was invasive disease-free survival. The team also looked at overall survival uh, after patients had disease recurrence, and this was based uh, on the clinical trial with extended follow-up. So how about the results? Uh, here are the IDFS results in the intention-to-treat population. You can see over time there was a sustained IDFS benefit. When the results were initially presented, there was some concern that, yes, you're seeing separation of the curves, but they might merge again, similar to what was seen in another trial with palbocyclic, the PNLP trial. But here we see with extended follow-up as presented at ESMO 2023, the benefit with abemacyclib is maintained, and it looks like some of the patients are cured of the disease based on the tuplet combination. If you look at the invasive disease-free survival, it, uh, at five years, it was 83% in patients who received endocrine plus abemacyclib 
versus 76% with endocrine therapy alone. This corresponded to a hazard ratio of 0.68. So that's 32% risk in uh, reduction, a risk reduction in developing IDFS. And the Kaplan-Meier curves continue to separate in favor of abemacycline. So the results are clinically meaningful and has led to the usage and adoption of abemacyclib in this setting. How about subgroups? In general, when we see results that are that significant, we would expect that all the subgroups derive benefit, and that is exactly what was seen. Let's look at the specific subgroups. I'll start with age first. Both in patients who were more than 65 years of age or less than 65, there was benefit with abemacyclib. The number of patients who were more than 65 was small, so that's why the confidence intervals are wide. At ASCO 2023, we saw subgroup results related to this age, including adverse events, and essentially the benefit was seen in the subgroup. Uh, the patients were uh, able to tolerate abemacyclib, but uh, needed more dose reductions. The second is menopausal status. Again, you see a benefit in both pre- and post-menopausal setting, a slight trend towards better benefit in the pre-menopausal setting, but again, these are subgroup analyses from a, a clinical perspective would feel comfortable using the drug both in premenopausal and postmenopausal. Next, patients who receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which was a big group in this clinical trial, versus patients who had adjuvant chemotherapy. Again, the benefit was seen in both the subgroups. ECOG performance status, uh, benefit seen. Now let's look at clinical pathological features. If you look at tumor size, uh, there was a subgroup of patients who had tumors less than two centimeters. The reason they were included in the trial is because they had other features like lymph nodes that were four or more in number or patients who had uh, other features like grade three or KI67 more than 20%. In all the subgroups, you could see benefit with abemacycline, regardless of tumor size. How about lymph nodes? Number of lymph nodes, again, uh, benefits seen in all the subgroups, including patients who had 10 or more lymph nodes. So even in the high, high-risk patient population, you see benefit with abemacycline. Uh, grade, the trial included patients with grade 3 tumors if they had lymph node 1 to 3 in number, uh, and you do see that patients with grade 3 tumors had benefit with abemacycline, grade 2 as well. With grade one, the confidence interval crossed one. It could be because of small numbers. There were 209 patients in the BEBA arm and 216 in the endocrine therapy arm. So it was a smaller subset as compared to the other subgroups. But biologically, there could be a case where a BEMA cyclib or ages that impact the CDK4-6 pathway cell cycle are less effective in grade one tumors because they have lower proliferation. Having said that, uh, these are subgroup analyses. We need further validation before we can change our practice. Uh, so if there's a patient with grade one tumor with say five positive lymph nodes or, or a tumor size of uh, seven centimeter, that would meet monarchy criteria. And at this time, uh, should consider abemacyclic plus endocrine therapy for that uh, patient as well. 
And then in terms of stage 2, stage 3, again, benefit was seen with abemocyclic plus endocrine therapy. And finally, in terms of the first endocrine treatment, whether it was tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitor, benefit was again seen with abemocyclic. Now, one thing to note with the use of tamoxifen and abemocyclic is that it can increase risk of venous thromboembolism. So many physicians would actually prefer aromatase inhibitor in combination with abemocyclic. And in a patient who's premenopausal, who's at high risk, add ovarian suppression to the aromatase in terms of uh, benefit, as I reviewed previously, there was benefit in invasive disease-free survival, also benefit in distant relapse-free survival. When a patient has localized disease, we worry about distant recurrence, about metastatic disease, and here you could see that with additional follow-up, the benefit with abemocyclic was maintained, and there was sustained uh, distant relapse-free survival benefit. And this translated to fewer patients with metastatic disease in the abemocyclib arm. If you look at the proportion of patients who have metastatic disease with additional follow-up, it was lower in patients with abemocyclib plus endocrine therapy, which makes sense because it reduces the risk of dis distance recurrence. You would have lower proportion of patients with metastatic disease. And this showed a trend towards improvement in overall survival because you had lower patients with metastatic disease in the abemocyclib. We still need additional follow-up in terms of overall survival. How about cohorts? Uh, there was some discussion based on KS67 because this clinical trial included both cohort 1 and cohort 2. As a reminder, cohort 1 was um, patients with four or more positive lymph nodes or patients who had one to three positive lymph nodes if they had other high-risk features like grade 3 tumors or tumor size more than 5 centimeter. That was cohort 1, which was about 90% of the patient population. Cohort 2 was a smaller subgroup, 10%, and this was for patients who had 1 to 3 positive lymph nodes and KI67 of more than 20%. In terms of benefit, the benefit was seen both in cohort 1 and cohort 2 in terms of invasive disease-free survival, in terms of distant recurrence-free survival. In terms of overall survival, the results are not mature at this time, um, and I think we need further follow-up related to overall survival. So based on these results, the latest approval by the FDA related to abemocyclib combines cohort 1 and cohort 2. So that's the intention to treat population. That is, that is what was included in the ASCO and NCCM guidelines as well that as long as a patient met criteria for treatment in the MONARCH-E trial, they are candidates for abemocyclin. How about safety? Uh, whenever we talk about drugs, we have to review both efficacy and safety. Uh, in terms of side effects, the side effects with abemocyclin were higher as compared to endocrine therapy, which is not surprising. It's doublet versus single-agent therapy. In terms of grade 3 AEs, it was about 50% with abemocyclic plus endocrine therapy versus 16% with endocrine therapy alone. In terms of significant AEs, again, it was higher with the use of abemocyclic. So the FDA expanded its approval on March 3rd, 2023. The FDA approved abemocyclic with endocrine therapy either tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitor 
as adjuvant treatment for patients with hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, early breast cancer who have high risk of recurrence. The approval was consistent with Monarch E. So it includes patients who have four or more positive lymph nodes or those who have one to three positive lymph nodes, either grade three tumor or tumor size more than 50%. The KI67 requirement that was there previously was removed. So we reviewed the Monarchy study. Now let's talk about another trial in this space, which has received a lot of attention, and that's the Natalie study. The Natalie study was for patients with hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, early breast cancer, who uh, had either stage 2A or stage 2B or stage 3 disease. That's the first feature that was different as compared to Monarchy. It was a broader population. Patients with stage 2 disease were included um, if they had positive lymph nodes, N1, or patients who had negative lymph nodes and grade 2 tumor if they had high risk based on KI67, more than 20%, or oncotype DX, or grade 3 tumors. So essentially, lymph node negative with clinical pathological high risk, grade 3, oncotype DX, KI67, or patients with lymph node positive disease. They were randomized to receive non-steroidal AI plus ribocyclin versus non-steroidal AI. In patients who were premenopausal, the use of ovarian suppression was recommended. Note there was no tamoxifen in this clinical trial because tamoxifen cannot be combined with ribocyclin because of adverse events. So in this trial, patients received non-steroidal AI and if they were premenopausal, received coserol. The primary endpoint of this clinical trial was invasive disease-free survival, a number of secondary endpoints as well. Stratification factors included stage 2, stage 3 disease, menopausal status, uh, prior use of neoadjuvant chemo, and uh, geographic region. In terms of patient flow, uh, we saw the first results with the data cutoff of January 11th with 426 events and then updated IDFS with final data cutoff of July 21st, IDFS events 509. Essentially, patients who received ribocyclic plus NSAI, you see uh, over time, uh, the proportion of patients completing ribocyclic increased. So when the first instrument uh, efficacy analyses were presented, about 20% of patients had completed three years, but this increased to 42% when the final IDFS analyses were completed. In terms of early discontinuation, uh, that was uh, a proportion that really didn't change much with increased follow-up. And if we look at NSAI, a uh, number of patients were still on NSAI, and, and a subset I would say about 20-25% based on these results at discontinued NSAI. About results, uh, the study met its primary endpoint uh, based on a p-value of 0.0014. The IDMC concluded the results met criteria for demonstrating statistically significant and clinically superior result. Um, the hazard ratio was 0.74, so that's about 25% risk in reduction of disease progression. The absolute IDFS benefit at three years was 3%. This is an early look. The study is continuing. We'll have to see additional follow-up uh, with these uh, results. 
ongoing patients uh, remain on treatment and follow-up conti will continue as pre-specified. At San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium 2023, we saw the final IDFS results from the Natalie study. With additional follow-up, you could see further separation of the curves, uh, benefit with uh, ribocyclib, about 3% uh, improvement in IDFS. The risk of invasive disease was reduced by 25%, hazard ratio 0.75 with ribocyclib plus NSAI. And this was statistically significant. How about subgroups? Uh, essentially, uh, all the subgroups derive benefit. We can look at the specific subgroups. If we look at menopausal status, uh, you see benefit in both the subgroups. Again, a slightly better trend in the premenopausal setting, similar to monarchy. Uh, but these are subgroup analyses from a clinical practice perspective. Would feel comfortable using the drug both in pre and postmenopausal setting. Similar benefit stage two, stage three disease. Similar benefit in patients who had received prior uh, chemotherapy versus not, regardless of the region. Um, grade uh, three as well as grade two. Similar to monarchy in grade one, the confidence intervals crossed one. Smaller numbers. Uh, there were uh, 213 patients in the ribocyclib arm, 217 in the NSAI arm. So small numbers, but a trend that was similar to what was seen in monarchy. Uh, KA67 results, similar results, uh, benefited both subgroups, lymph node status benefited both subgroups, and prior endocrine therapy that was similar as well. So essentially, all the subgroups derive benefit with ribocyclin. If you look at the kaplan my curves by stage, uh, these are the results by stage 2 versus stage 3. You see similar hazard ratios between stage 2 and stage 3. If anything, slightly better hazard ratio for stage 2. The absolute IDFS is better in stage 2 because uh, those are patients who have better prognosis. Uh, so the delta is smaller, about 2% uh, three-year IDFS difference in stage 2. Uh, the delta is larger in stage 3, close to 5% um, immediate uh, three-year IDFS rate difference. Uh, which is to be expected given that there are more events in stage 3. For stage 2, we need more follow-up, and if the results are similar to monarchy, over time we'll see further separation of the curves. By nodal status, again, similar benefit. You could see both in patients with lymph node negative disease and positive, uh, there was similar benefit with ribocyclib, similar hazard ratios. In terms of distant disease-free survival, uh, improvement with ribocyclib, this is to be expected. Uh, this, uh, this would then translate to fewer proportion of patients with metastatic disease, which could have an impact on overall survival as well. These are the initial overall survival results. Very mature at this time. Uh, only 3% uh, in terms of events. Uh, we need additional follow-up before we can... Uh, uh, evaluate the impact of ribocyclib on overall survival. In terms of side effects with ribocyclib in the Natalie study, as a reminder, the dose of ribocyclib was 400 milligrams. So you see a lower risk of neutropenia, lower risk of increase in liver enzymes as compared to what's been described in the Mona Lisa series, where 600 milligrams of ribocyclib was used in the metastatic setting. 
The most common side effect with ribocyclib was neutropenia. That's a side effect seen with the CDK4-6 inhibition. Besides that increase in liver enzymes of the three different CDK4-6 inhibitors, ribocyclib has the highest risk of increase in liver enzymes and then a small but known risk of QTC prolongation. The rate of treatment discontinuation because of these side effects was not that high. Uh, neutropenia in general can be managed with dose reductions and supportive therapy. So in conclusions for Natalie, in this protocol-specified final IDFS analysis, ribocyclic plus NSAI demonstrated a significant improvement in IDFS over NSAI alone. 78% uh, of patients no longer of ribocyclib at the time of data cutoff. We did additional follow-up to look at what happens at, uh, say, five years, similar to what we saw with monarchy. The IDFS benefit was consistent across all subgroups, including stage 2, stage 3, lymph node positive, and negative disease. In terms of side effects, uh, in NATLI, the dose of ribocyclib was 400 milligrams, which is a lower dose than what's used in the metastatic setting, which is 600 milligrams. And this 400 milligram dose was better, better tolerated as compared to 600 milligrams in terms of the frequency of neutropenia, QTC prolongation, and NFTs as well. So overall results further emphasize that three years of ribocyclic plus NSAI um, has superior IDFS in a broad population of patients with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancer. So now let's put this in perspective and have uh, and uh, review practical considerations for clinical integration of adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibitors in this setting. So putting the evidence in perspective, this is a slide that compares Monarchy and Natalie. Some differences between the studies. The first is the eligibility population. Monarchy essentially was high risk, patients with more than four positive nodes or one to three positive nodes with tumor size more than five centimeter, grade three, or KS67 more than 20%. On the other hand, Natalie included the so-called intermediate uh, as well as high risk. So that includes the monarchy population plus patients with lymph node positive disease who did not meet monarchy criteria and also a subgroup of patients with lymph node negative disease who had biological high risk, such as grade 3 tumors, oncotype DX score of more than 26, or MAMA print high. The second difference was the duration of uh, CDK4-6 inhibitor. It was three years in Natalie, and it was two years uh, in Monarchy with abemacyclic. And the third difference is the endocrine therapy. Tamoxifen was allowed in Monarchy. It was not allowed in Natalie. In Natalie, patients received Nasrazole or Letrozole. So how do the efficacy and safety profile compare? Um, if we look at efficacy, the say the three-year uh, IDFS with Monarchy and three-year IDFS with Natalie, they're fairly similar. So similar efficacy results seen. The difference is Natalie had a broader population. The side effect profile is different. With abemacyclib, tend to see more diarrhea, tend to see more um, nausea, uh, venous thromboembolism. With ribocyclib, more neutropenia, 
um, more increase in liver enzymes and small but known risk of QTC prolongation. In terms of the strength of evidence, Monarchy reported earlier than Natalie, so has more mature data, including five-year IDFS, which we've not seen with Natalie. So for a patient that, has, that is eligible for both these drugs, it'll be a choice uh, based on the side effect profile, based on the maturity of the data level of evidence, and we'll review that with a couple of cases. Now, before we uh, talk about specific cases, I think it's important to also review uh, the uh, patient perspective. Uh, living Beyond Breast Cancer GRASS peer view conducted a patient experience survey, and the survey question was, if you've been diagnosed with early breast cancer, has your doctor or another member of your cancer care team discussed risk of recurrence with you? 61% said yes, and it helped me understand my risk of recurrence and what the options are. About one-fourth of patients said yes, but I really didn't understand what the risk of recurrence means and what the options are for reducing my risk. And 15% says do not remember. There was another survey, the discrete choice survey, which surveyed about 400 US-based women, median age 53 years of age, uh, included a diverse population, white, black, other races, patients with stage two as well as stage three disease. And it was a qualitative interview of patients and patients were asked about their preferences in the adjuvant setting. In terms of relative importance of attributes, the important attributes that patients wanted from the drug included higher efficacy, lower risk of side effects like diarrhea, fatigue, shorter treatment duration, lower risk of venous thromboembolism, the number of blood tests in first six months, EKGs, and that finally treatment schedule. This is from high to low relative risk uh, of uh, relative importance of attributes. So the most important attribute from a patient perspective was higher efficacy. Then was the side effect profile like diarrhea, fatigue, uh, and then treatment duration. The factors that were less important included treatment schedule uh, and the number of EKGs. I think patients essentially want drugs that would prevent uh, disease recurrence. If it means some additional tests, including AKGs, uh, patients are open to that if it would reduce the risk of recurrence. These are the findings based on the survey. So the takeaway message is that patients with hormone receptor positive early breast cancer have a strong preference for treatment profiles that maximize efficacy while minimizing uh, symptomatic side effects. So over the next uh, 10 minutes or so, let's review a couple of cases. Um, I'll start with a patient with hormone receptor positive for to negative early breast cancer. This is a 53-year-old postmenopausal black female. Uh, she had a symptomatic mass in the right breast, had a mammogram ultrasound which showed a three-centimeter tumor, invasive lobular carcinoma, ERPR positive, KS67 of uh, 15 to 20% patient had lymph node positive disease. The physician ordered restaging scans, which radiologically did not show any evidence of metastatic disease. Germline testing for BRCA was negative. So she underwent a right mastectomy and axillary lymph node dissection, 3.3 centimeter tumor grade to one out of three positive lymph nodes. 
received adjuvant ACT treatment, a radiation to a chest wall, and now the question is what to consider in the adjuvant setting. As a reminder, this is a patient with lymph node positive disease, 3.3 centimeter tumor. She lives in a remote uh, rural community, has to travel via car for work, and is on the road frequently. So this could have an impact in terms of choice of the drug uh, if this patient was eligible for both ribocyclib and bemocyclib, the side effect profile could have an impact. For example, diarrhea could be a problematic side effect uh, given the patient has to travel frequently on the road. For this specific patient, given this patient has uh, intermediate risk, so that's lymph node positive without other high-risk features like more than 5-centimeter tumor, grade 3, uh, and there's only one positive note, the patient would not be a candidate for abemacyclib because these uh, features were not included in the Monarch-E study. But the patient would be a candidate for ribocyclib because this was included in the Natalie study. So what would you recommend for this patient? Uh, I would recommend adjuvant ribocyclib plus endocrine therapy. So that's option number two, uh, given that this is what was studied uh, in Natalie, but this was not studied in Monarchy. I would not do endocrine therapy alone, given that we've seen improvement in invasive disease-free survival. Uh, ultimately, it's a discussion with patient. The patient starts ribocyclib, has side effects, increase in liver enzymes uh, that uh, cannot be reduced, uh, or patient, uh, for other reasons, cannot consider ribocyclib. Uh, that's always reasonable. At the end of the day, you have to do a patient-centered uh, decision and what would work best for the patient, considering their individual circumstances. But in terms of an ideal scenario for this patient, option number two, ribocyclib plus endocrine therapy would be recommended. Let's talk about uh, another case now. This is a patient with high-risk uh, hormone receptor positive HER2-negative early breast cancer. 43-year-old postmenopausal female uh, presented with a symptomatic mass in her right breast. Uh, we would recommend a mammogram ultrasound whenever you see a symptomatic mass. That is what was done. Uh, ultrasound showed a 5-centimeter mass. Patient had a biopsy. Grade 3 invasive lobular carcinoma, ERPR positive for to negative, KS67, 15 to 20%. The lymph node biopsy, because that was palpable, was positive for disease as well. Any patient with lymph node positive disease, it's very reasonable to get restaging scans. That is what was done, which was negative for radiological evidence of metastatic disease. The germline testing was negative. Patient uh, underwent right mastectomy and axillary lymph node dissection, it showed a 5.3-centimeter tumor, grade 3 invasive lobular carcinoma, probably mixed uh, lobular and ductal carcinoma, and two out of the three lymph nodes are positive. Patient received adjuvant treatment with ACT, received radiation to a chest wall and regional lymph nodes, and back to the same question. What would you recommend for this patient would you recommend adjuvant abemacyclic plus endocrine therapy? Would you recommend adjuvant ribocyclic plus endocrine therapy? Would you do endocrine therapy alone or I'm not sure? This is a tough situation. Um, this patient is a candidate for both 
abemaciclib and ribocyclib. So option four is not that wrong. I'm not sure because uh, essentially both option one and option two are very reasonable uh, if ribocyclib is approved in the future. Abemaciclib plus endocrine therapy is very reasonable based on monarchy and this patient does meet treatment criteria because the patient had positive lymph nodes with a tumor size that was more than 5 centimeter, and also there was grade 3 disease. The patient also meets criteria for ribocyclic plus endocrine therapy, given that that was included in the Natalie study, patient had lymph node positive disease. So how do you decide between these drugs? I think it's a patient-centered discussion. You talk about the efficacy, the maturity of the data. You review the uh, schedule with ribocyclib, it is uh, three week on, one week off, given for three years. With abemacyclib, it's daily, twice a day for two years. And then you review the side effect profile. With abemacyclib, it's diarrhea, it's nausea, and the risk of venous thromboembolism. With ribocyclib, it is uh, neutropenia, so patients need the blood work monitored frequently. Uh, we usually do it uh, twice a month for the first two months, and then after that, once a month also need monitoring of liver enzymes. The incidence of LFT increases higher with ribocyclib than abemacyclib. And finally, known risk of QTC prolongation. Small but known risk. It's uh, usually in the first two cycles. So usually uh, we get EKGs uh, twice a month for the first two months. And then after that, you can spread out the frequency. Uh, some would do this up to six months and then stop. Now, it should be noted that uh, blood monitoring is also needed with abemacyclib, given that it does cause neutropenia, but the risk is lower than that of ribocyclib. So all these three factors need to be considered. What's the uh, efficacy and level of evidence? What's the schedule and duration of treatment? And third, the side effect profile with these drugs. And based on this, you can have a patient-centered discussion and choose which drug to start with. If you're having difficulty with one drug, it's good to have options, then you can switch to the other drug. Similar to what we do with aromatase inhibitors, we sometimes start with letrozole, and if a patient is having a lot of side effects, switch to exomestane. So it's good to have options because it gives flexibility. Now, how do you manage the side effects? What if the patient develops neutropenia? How would you monitor and manage that? So let's say you start uh, ribocyclic plus endocrine therapy and patient comes back on cycle to day one with an ANC count of 700. What would you consider at that time? So if we look at guidelines in general, the recommendation would be to hold ribocyclib, allow the neutropenia if it's grade three or higher to recover to grade one or less, and then you can resume the drug. Similarly with abemacyclib. How about diarrhea? What if the patient develops diarrhea? How would you monitor and manage that? So while in general, primary prophylaxis with antidiarrheals is not done with abemacyclin, it could be considered for some patients. We should have a low threshold for secondary prophylaxis, the use of loperamide. Uh, in uh, refractory cases, you can consider other antidiarrheals as well. In the monarchy study, majority of patients who discontinued treatment was in the first six months, and it appears that if you can manage the diarrhea well in the first six months, usually it's much easier to continue the drug after that. So the first six months requires close monitoring, the use of antidiarrheals, so that patients can remain on the drug. 
what is the role of those modifications of ribocyclib and memocyclib in the adjuvant setting? Absolutely. If a patient is having side effect or if it's taking a while for the side effect to resolve, you can consider dose reduction with ribocyclib. Uh, it's started at 400 milligrams, three week on, one week off, uh, as done in the uh, Natalie study. You can dose reduce to 200 milligrams. Uh, with abemacyclib, it's 150 milligrams twice a day. You can dose reduce to 100 milligrams twice a day. So there is an option for dose reduction with these agents. How can we facilitate adherence and help patients? I think that is a key. If a patient will not be on a drug, they cannot derive benefit from the drug. So you can only derive benefit from a drug that you take, and that's why adherence becomes very important, which is challenging in the adjuvant setting to be on a drug for three years, to be on endocrine therapy for five years or longer uh, can have an impact, and we see that over time the compliance does decrease. And this has an impact on quality of life as well. Uh, if a patient is on therapy for a long period of time, they can have side effects with endocrine therapy, osteoporosis, uh, with uh, tamoxifen risk of uh, uterine cancer, thromboembolism. So it's important. And with ovarian suppression, uh, bone loss, uh, menopausal symptoms. So it's important that we pay attention to uh, optimizing quality of life as well. One approach to improving adherence for patients who are on CDK4-6 inhibitors is the simple approach, S-I-M-P-L-E. So what is S? S is to simplify regimen characteristics. So that's adjusting the timing, frequency, dosage to match the patient's activities of daily living. So they are more likely to remain on the drug. I is impart knowledge. Education in terms of what are the side effects, how to manage the side effects, dose reductions if needed, provide written distribution uh, as well as pamphlets. M is modify patient's belief. You have to understand the patient, their perceived susceptibility, severity benefit, what are the barriers. So essentially understanding the patient's belief and modifying your treatment regimen so that it matches patient's belief would be helpful in ensuring that patient can remain on the P is patient and family communication. It's critical. Once you prescribe the drug, the communication does not stop there. It needs to be continued communication if a patient is having side effect, what needs to be done. And if there is continued communication, there will be higher adherence. L is leave the bias. Uh, we need to reduce our implicit bias. We reviewed this earlier as well in terms of reducing uh, disparities. We have to tailor the education to patient's level of understanding. The same uh, education cannot be provided to all patients. You have to understand where the patient is coming from, and the education needs to be tailored to their level of understanding based on their beliefs as well as background. And then finally, evaluate adherence. Uh, there are tools that can monitor self-reports. There are uh, pill counting bottles, strategies that can evaluate adherence would only help improve compliance. So, hope this was helpful. We reviewed uh, adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibitors. We reviewed abemacyclib. We reviewed ribocyclib. We reviewed the differences between Natli and Monarchy. We reviewed the side effect profile and how to select if a patient is a candidate for both these drugs. And finally, we reviewed the simple approach for improving adherence. Thank you so much for joining today. 
feel free to reach out if there are any questions. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partners, Living Beyond Breast Cancer and GRASP. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FHB 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.